What is going on, everybody? Welcome back to another Serious Angler podcast powered by our friends over at X2 Power Batteries. As always, I'm your host, Bailey Egbrett, and joined with me, feeling much better than Finally. He, uh, he has been, is uh, the captain, Mr. Yeah. Andy Fulton. What's going on, buddy? <clears throat> oh, I am. It, it's been a rough month over here in the full household. Like, Amanda's yeah. still slightly sick. I finally got back to guiding the last two days, and I got the dry cough kind of happening again. I'm just like, I might have to sleep another three days before I get, like, pneumonia again. So we'll see. We're trying, though. Like, what's going on with you? Not much, man. We're uh, just grinding away. We got a lot of exciting stuff coming for this show, but uh, I feel like we say that a lot. It's just, it's, yeah. it's been a lot of background work. It's been a lot of, I mean, our guest tonight knows what it's like being in the, in the trenches of things. And that's kind of like, it sounds bad when we say that, but like from a media platform, it's a lot of background work to make things look good on the front end. And I'm not saying we yeah. look good because we got two ugly mugs on a screen right now. Oh, we got, we my, got to do as my much computer screen's broken. <laughs> yeah. It's as much background work as we can do to uh, try to make things run smooth, make things happen, make things cool, make things, not a pain for you guys listening and watching to uh, attend to. And with that, I'm happy to say within probably you would say what Andy within the month, we will have our website up and running. And with that, we'll have oh, a bunch of apparel for you guys to find. We've been getting a bunch of questions about it. Like when is this going to be available? What are we going to be able to get? It's going to be up for you guys. Hoodies, sweatshirt, uh, sweatshirts. Bailey's working hard really hard at getting this up and running for you guys so everyone should give him a round of applause for Dude, I've just all been... the valiant effort he is putting in because he is the man well it's like it's been three years we we've done like small pre-orders and yeah. i hate shipping stuff so like this was a lot of like background headache to get it set up but we have it set up we just have a couple more steps to make sure we're doing it right that way you guys don't have headache when you go to buy stuff and go purchase apparel and we're gonna have some cool stuff with that apparel, uh, we're gonna have some, you know, some fun things like with Series Dangler. We're gonna have some fun shirts, uh, but we're also gonna do some some theme shirts throughout the year um, that we're in, uh, brainstorming internally that can be like some shirts that'll be themed towards, you know, Veterans Day or uh, Memorial Day. That all the proceeds go to uh, veterans and first responders. Uh, some stuff like that. We're gonna try to do some good with this platform because when you get a following, it's always good to give back. Um, we got a bunch of people joining in. We're going to get our guest down here in a second. And Andy and I are very, very excited to get our guest down. I met him uh, probably a month ago or so, if, maybe a month and a half, uh, back down in uh, Louisiana. It was in New Orleans for an ASA summit. And we got to talking. And this guy's knowledge of fish biology intrigues me. I could have talked to him for, for days on end. But uh, this will be probably the first of many episodes. We're going to get Mr. Stephen Barden on the show to talk about a whole list of topics. We're going to bring him on here in a second, but uh, two more things I have for you guys is with the new website. What we're also going to do is we are creating a newsletter for you guys. that will come out once a week. Uh, if you want to get that newsletter, what that newsletter will show is uh, what that week's going to look like in terms of episodes. You'll get the sneak peek of who's coming on, what to expect. We'll have like discounts on apparel. We'll have much different, different sneaky deals, discounts from our partners and such. That'll be on that newsletter. If you want to get on that newsletter, either reach out on social um, to either Andy or I or the Serious Angle Social, or our email is actually in the show description. If you guys want to get on that, just email us. We'll add you to that um, that email list, um, and we'll we'll get you squared away. That should be up and running in a few weeks. 
And then if you did not take advantage of the Black Friday deals, one thing I want to remind everybody is every single show throughout the entirety of the year, all of our show partners that provide you guys, the fans of Serious Angler, um, a discount code is in that show description. So if you guys want to get a percentage off of Hobie Eyewear or tackle at Omnia Fishing, all that jazz, everything is down below for you guys to take advantage of. Andy, anything I'm missing before we get our, our guest on tonight? Oh, we just hope everyone loaded up on all the awesome Black Friday deals that yeah. were going on out there. I'm, I know Do It was running a lot of sick yeah. stuff. Oh, yeah. So. I took advantage of it myself. Oh, <laughs> didn't we all? Like, I hope all of our listeners did as well. But, like, I'm, I'm sure I'll be yelled at when all the packages start rolling in. Yeah. sounds like black friday <laughs> oh yeah like yeah. every day we have amazon packages showing up on the doorstep right now and i'm just like what the heck is this <laughs> that's right <laughs> well andy oh. our guest tonight we're gonna bring him on here in a couple seconds he uh he is heading the major league fishing's habitat restoration project something that i got tied in for my work and this is how i actually got to know steve we had a, a mutual connection here but it's cool to, to have some beers and, and talk some fishing down with him in Louisiana. But I'm excited to bring him on right here, Mr. Stephen Barden. What's going on, man? Hey, guys. How are you all tonight? Good, Doing man. Good. How are you? Yeah, I'm enjoying my Texas weather. 75 degrees today. It's a great day to be out on the boat. Um, cold front comes through tonight, so tomorrow will be maybe 40. This is probably like the time to be in Texas where it's not like blistering hot. It's not blistering hot, and uh, November fishing is is typically pretty good. Uh, you know, it, it can be rough because, of, you know, it's Florida bass, so if they get stained water, you know, high water, stuff like that, they get temperamental. Cold fronts, they're temperamental, but, man, they're chomping. They are just chomping, so it's a, it's a good time. Um, with what I do, I do most of my fishing while everybody else is in a tree stand, so um, from, from here through January, I'll be fishing as much as possible. Oh, that sounds fantastic. I wish I could be bass fishing right now. <laughs> we, we could be. We could be bass fishing, but the 45-mile-an-hour winds every day kind of keep us from doing that, unfortunately. Yes. But, uh, but Steve, uh, really fast, before we kind of dive into the thicket of today's show, kind of give us give the folks a little bit of background about you, what you do, and then uh, kind of your introduction into fishing itself. Perfect. I can do that. So my name is Stephen Barden. I'm a fisheries biologist. I got a bachelor's degree from a local university called Tarleton State, and that's in the Texas A&M system. And, and my bachelor's degree was in freshwater biology. And uh, shortly thereafter, I, I went and got my master's at Texas A&M. And while I was at A&M getting my master's in fishery science, I decided to start my own lake management company. Uh, so I own a lake management company. It's private water only, and it's called Texas Pro Lake Management. Uh, we work on private waters, creating trophy bass fisheries for our clients, mainly absentee owners. Um, throughout my career, I've done a lot of stuff, Bailey. Um, I was a adjunct professor for Tarleton State uh, for five years, taught fisheries management and conservation. Uh, also taught a course in ichthyology for two years. Ichthyology is the study of fishes, kind of their history and and uh, evolution. And then more recently, myself and my business partner, I'm business partners with Gary Klein. Um, so everybody knows him. We started a business called Black Bass Stewardship Group, which puts together kind of his knowledge as an angler and my knowledge as a, as a fisheries biologist and creates conservation projects for 
companies, brands, events, and, you know, uh, we represent Major League Fishing in their fisheries management division. And so uh, that's, yeah, me and you met, I, I would guess, in March at Red Crest was the first time. And we had just announced uh, the fisheries management division's partnership with Berkeley Labs. Um, and then, of course, we spent a, a pretty cool week in Louisiana last month. So I'm um, glad to be on the show. Um, really, anything, I'm, I'm, I guess I'm more of an ecologist than anything else. Um, but anything fish related that you guys want to throw at me, um, that's freshwater, I can probably talk about. Oh, it's perfect. Uh, and I know right. I, threw, I threw a lot of it at you already when we were in New Orleans. Um, and I really fast, for folks that are watching this live, feel free to let questions rip. Uh, Steve, actually, he said offline, we could put him on the spot. He gave us permission. So if you guys got yeah. questions, we're going to take a stab at them. So feel free to, to flood the comments. I, t- I taught 20-year-old kids for five years. You guys can't throw a tough one at me. <laughs> that's like a challenge trip. Yeah. I, good thing I don't ask challenging questions. I'm pretty simple-minded <laughs> over here. <laughs> <laughs> well, see, what, let's, start, let's start hot and heavy here with a question that I've talked about. Well, one I've talked about with you, but also uh, Andy and I have brought this up many times on this show. And it's good to finally have somebody that has like the knowledge to talk about this truthfully versus us just disgruntled anglers that are speaking our opinions um, is spraying grass. Because one of the things we talked about, I expressed the way I thought about, I felt about it with you and leaving that conversation. I felt completely different about spraying grass because there's a lot of education around it. And there's some people that do it correctly, which (laughs) healthy for the fishery as you discussed, but there's some people that don't do it right. But Kind of explain the importances of spraying grass. All right. We're going to nerd out already. I'm so sorry to this audience. Um, <laughs> let's let's start with why does grass grow, right? And, and we're talking about aquatic vegetation. And basically anywhere sunlight penetrates to the sediment, you could have some sort of aquatic vegetation grow. And we call that the littoral zone of a, of a reservoir. So for For most reservoirs, let's say with a 24-inch visibility, that littoral zone is going to be somewhere between 12 and 6 foot, um, depending on what's really causing that visibility. And that's where vegetation is going to start growing. And unfortunately, reservoirs were never built um, for actually fishing. They were were built to impound water for a number of different reasons and, and prevent floods. Uh, so we didn't shape a reservoir whenever we started. Um, so what you have is you have some areas that have a lot of littoral zone. You have some areas that have no littoral zone. Um, then you also have a, an unpredictable seed base of plants. And plants propagate in several different ways. I kind of chatted about hydrilla. It's one of the most popular plants for, for fishing around. And, the, and the, the cool part about hydrilla is it'll propagate four different ways. So um, it has tubers, and tubers are like a little potato, and then it has turions, which is kind of like a little pine cone, and then it will also uh, do what's called fragment, so if a piece of hydrilla breaks off, it starts a new plant, and then finally it'll have seeds if it's, uh, if, if it's a sexually reproducing plant. So you can have uh, a plant like hydrilla actually grows with 1% sunlight, so a lot deeper than most of our native species, but a plant like hydrilla with lots of reproductive methods, it's going to grow and it's going to it's going to take over that littoral zone. Now, the cool part is in a fishery, uh, if you have the right amount of littoral zone, that creates great nursery habitat. 
It creates defined edges that you can fish around and it's angler friendly. The issue we have is if we have too much littoral zone or the wrong plant growing in the wrong environment, you know, it wasn't shaped correctly. So don't want to just keep going on and on about plants. Um, but whenever you spray a plant, um, the interesting part is a, a herbicide selection. There's two different types of modes of action. So you have systemic herbicides or you have contact herbicides. And if I were to go to any reservoir, I would look at what plant it was, and then I would select a systemic herbicide if I wanted to eradicate it, or a contact herbicide if I wanted to do something more like manicure it, if I wanted to spray it and get it out of uh, small areas. Now the herbicide, a contact herbicide has to physically touch the plant. So you don't really spray it, that's not the correct term. You would inject it, you would drive over the top and you would put the herbicide right over the top of the plant and it would coat and just kill the plant where it touches it. A systemic herbicide has to sit in the water for several days or months um, and has to have a parts per billion uh, of that chemical active to absorb into the plant. And then there's a mode of action. So it would stop something like photosynthesis from occurring within the plant. Um, that's what would actually kill the plant is its inability to do photosynthesis. So I feel like we're nerding out way too much already. Oh, this is oh, just the first fine. question. <laughs> Rain, buddy, like let it let it rip. But if you feel like there is like a term that is like takes a sense of expertise to understand, like from your degree, like feel free to stop and explain it really fast. Okay, For us, cool. Andy and I are like again, like Andy said, we're simple folks, so some big words might fly over. Mine is bass <laughs> eat grass works. Let's catch fish. Like that's yeah, where no. my brain works. <laughs> so if we take it to like small impoundment management, that would be maybe easier. So if we had a 10 acre lake and the 10 acre lake uh, that's brand new and we construct it ourselves, we would want to construct it with 20% or less of that lake in littoral zone. So that would initially, we would only have 20% of that lake that could possibly grow vegetation. And if I stay at 20% or less, um, what that does is that maximizes the ability for juvenile fish to escape predation and still have a fertile lake that will produce forage. And I would actually have my maximum carrying capacity somewhere between 15 and 20% of the lake having littoral vegetation. Anything over 20% becomes an issue, especially as you get closer to 30%. Once we get to 30%, largemouth become super lethargic predators and their home ranges shrink so they don't move as often they don't they don't consume as much forage the forage has to come to them and so what we see is whenever a small impoundment has 30 percent or more littoral zone your growth rates slow down um, so your carrying capacity isn't reached as easily you can take this on a much larger scale it's the exact same thing every reservoir has a carrying capacity uh, but instead of talking about 30% of the reservoir, you would talk about 30% of an area within a reservoir. So if we were taking like Okeechobee, we're not going to say, well, 30% of the lake can't have vegetation. What we would say is like this area, if it gets beyond 30%, that's going to cause those fish to have smaller home ranges, become more lethargic and weigh less. If we could get that down to 15 or 20%, what would end up happening is there would be more forage available to them. They'd have a larger home range. They'd be easier to catch. So essentially to take it out of nerd word context, right? Like the smaller the vegetation field we have, the less target area these bass have to feed, but there's still sustainable area for 
forage to live, basically is yeah. what you're saying. Yeah, and there's always it's always species dependent. Um, yeah. There's certain species that just how they grow. Let's take like a like a bushy pond weed. A bushy pond weed is going to grow just like what its name sounds like a little bush, a dense bush. It's going to grow in super shallow water, but it's going to be very hard to penetrate with the lure. So you're going to fish the edges of it. That means that the largemouth are going to live on the edges of it. They can't go inside it either. There's not, not one of these fish that has a weed eater with them when they're going in and out of vegetation. Like they've got to go through the tunnels and channels that are made naturally how that plant grows. And that's why plants like hydrilla that have more of a, of a stem with branches on it and very small leaves create canopy and create those canals. And, and people like to do things like punch into those vegetations or fish the, the tops of them uh, because of how their growth pattern goes. There's other plants that, um, you know, I think of like an eelgrass, like an eelgrass creates a, like a meadow or a field. And depending on current, that plant is really fishable or it's actually really difficult to fish. You know, if the current has it laying over, it creates a great canopy and it creates an edge. But if the current stops and it becomes stagnant, that leaf floats to the top and will hang every bit you throw through it. That's so, super intriguing. And one of the things... You had mentioned to me, and I'd love for you to explain this further, was with grass. Like, if you if you have too much grass in a fishery, it's hard to build bigger bass, I believe, is what I understood from you. Can you right. explain that? Yeah, so that goes back to what I was saying about the 30% and the carrying capacity. Right. Um, and it really, you know, we think of vegetation as like nursery habitat and places that we can go catch fish. But on an ecological level, um, your vegetation, any aquatic vegetation, is competing for nutrient um, during the day with phytoplankton. Phytoplankton is what gives water that green color. You know, if you go out to the lake, we see green water. That's phytoplankton. That's a microscopic plant. The majority of oxygen in the lake come from that phytoplankton. And the majority of fish, almost all the fish in the lake, start their food chain by eating phytoplankton or they definitely consume a another plankton that consumes phytoplankton so we have phytoplankton zooplankton and then we have like macro invertebrates like copepods that's the food chain okay that's the food chain for for every juvenile fish and and for things like shad aquatic vegetation is larger and so it has more surface area to grab nutrient and absorb nutrient than small phytoplankton so it's more efficient. So as you increase to 30% of the reservoir in vegetation, what that does, is it creates water clarity. So if the littoral zone was originally at eight foot, as that plant absorbs nutrient and starves out the phytoplankton, it creates water clarity that allows the plant to continue to grow because now sunlight can penetrate further. So now it can grow to 12 foot or 15 feet. And whenever that starts to happen, our carrying capacity goes down because the food source for juvenile fish is going away. And because now we've increased beyond 30% to 40 or 50%. So it becomes much more difficult for those large mouth to grow. So if I'm growing trophy fish, um, once again, I'll go to like small impoundments. If I'm going to grow trophy fish in a 20 acre lake, I want 15 to 20% to be littoral zone. I want two to three foot of visibility of rich green phytoplankton color because that starts the food chain correctly and it provides habitat. It's super intriguing to me. Like, <laughs> I feel like 
I mean, we, we have some people already saying in the chat how they need you to come to their specific <laughs> state to, to help certain things. Um, yeah. But we have, we have an interesting question here from Adam S. Okay. He's asking, without spring, what could, what could be some alternatives in limiting excessive aquatic plant growth in a lake? Yeah, that's a great question, Adam. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to caveat the whole night with every fishery is different. You know, you have a different situation. You have a different nutrient level. You have a different topography. You have different plant species and then environmental conditions, including weather and temperature. So it's hard to blanket statement anything. I was actually talking to Bill Shedd from AFCO. And one of the things he told me was it is so hard to get into fisheries conservation on the freshwater side because all of our issues are regional or local, where whenever AFCO was originally starting, all of their issues uh, that they were looking for in coastal fisheries were all universal. So Adam, the question is going to be difficult to answer, but at the same time, I think I can give you a broad enough answer that it's okay. So in fisheries management, we teach um, integrated pest management for uh, controlling plants. And so what integrated pest management means use every resource available and make herbicides your last option. Okay. So usually um, it feels like it's the opposite. It feels like it, it's like go straight for spraying, but, but we try to use integrated pest management and we put control methods into three categories. The first one is mechanical control. Mechanical control would be anything that physically removes plant. And this is really good if your plant does not reproduce through fragmentation. So almost all your submerged plants will. Um, eelgrass, coontail, hydrilla, they will all reproduce through fragmentation. So if I were to go and physically remove them with a rake or a, you know, a large piece of equipment or tractor, um, what would end up happening is every piece of fragment that I left would reroute and create new plant. So I might be cleaning that plant out today, but I'm creating new plant for tomorrow and that could become an issue. It will also allow it to, to move quite a bit within the reservoir. Uh, so mechanical can be this really cool, uh, quick removal of plant as long as it doesn't fragment. The next one we have, you know, is any biologic control. Biologic controls are what you've heard of like triploid grass cart. Um, and, and the hard part about using a biologic control is you can't control where that fish eats or what it eats. So to me, you know, in my private company, biologic control is actually one of our least used applications because it's an eradication method. It's not a control of a plant. Um, you do have a little bit of work being done on minimizing that littoral zone using some sort of shade or dye, especially in small fisheries. Um, or fertilization can do the same thing, increasing that phytoplankton bloom to shade the bottom, and that will work a little bit. Um, so then we are all, we always end up right back to spraying. And so you look at the plant, if it doesn't fragment, you may be able to mechanically control it. Um, you will have, the sad part about any mechanical control is you're going to have a lot of loss of fish whenever you do it. Um, any fish that lives in that environment is going to get removed. Um, and you could have some, some off-target species being removed too. If you select the right herbicide, um, you could be very species specific. I mean, at this point, um, I, I've posted on my social media about four or five years ago, a, a herbicide job that I did, uh, a private uh, in Texas, 
if you have a like a dock on a reservoir in a lot of our reservoirs you can get a permit to to spray around your dock and in this reservoir allowed 10 foot around the dock and somebody contracted me to come do it and there was lily pads uh, next to hydrilla and they wanted to remove the hydrilla and leave the lily pads and after 10 days you could see a definitive line that i drew around the lily pads to leave them and i i got rid of all the hydrilla but left the lily pads and that could be done it just takes a lot of extra time and effort to make sure that you don't overspray and you select the right chemical yeah that, that was one of the the interesting things i took away from our conversation was picking the right herbicide for mm -hmm. the fishery because i had explained to you uh one of our home lakes cayuga when yep. the mlf went to last year is going again this year um i think they selected the wrong the wrong one to use because they didn't realize hey there's there's natural wind current on this lake and cause they had used pellets and that's yep. why our, the North end of the lake has no grass in it. Um, yeah. So that was one of the conversations we had that was super intriguing. Um, and I feel like this one in particular from talking about grass, I mean, Andy knows I like go on about it for hours, but like in the 10 minutes talking to you about it and tonight I've learned life like way more than I already could have anticipated. But um I think this is one that's super interesting. And you made a good point about like, this is super specific to where you live because right. obviously these things can change. But um, I, I was going to ask this later on in the episode uh, once we gotten through some different topics, but I think it's good to preface throughout it um, is like if, if people have issues or they think they have issues with their, in their region or their local lakes, obviously you have local fisheries and game, but sometimes they can be very difficult to communicate with. What would you suggest is a great way to communicate with your, whether it's local regional or state fishing game of how to try to get a conversation going about local issues? Yeah, that's great. So um, this, this kind of goes into my MLF hat and my black bass stewardship group hat. Um, I wear a ton of different hats. So um, I, I deal with, every biologist across every state um, throughout the year. You know, MLF, we do a lot of data sharing and we do projects across several states. And you're right. I mean, some some of the biologists are super easy to get a hold of and, and communication's great. Others, you know, it's difficult um, because they're so busy. Um, you know, they these guys and gals have, I, I laugh all the time because I work in the private sector where, like I've got one person to make happy, and as long as I make them happy, I'm good. Where state biologists, um, they literally have hundreds of thousands of stakeholders that that kind of determine, you know, are they doing a good job at their job? And there's no real way to win because everybody has a unique perspective on what they want the reservoir to look like, or, or, you know, whatever it may be. But if I was going to try to communicate, the first thing I would do, I would go to the website for whatever my state agency is. And I would look up my regional biologist, who is the actual biologist that is going to be taking care of my fishery. And I would send them the first email or just call their office directly. Um, it is much easier to communicate with them if if you're asking questions rather than demanding answers. Um, so, so being polite goes a long way with these state guys. Um, but, you know, they do work for you. And what I mean by that is you have a lot of resources at, at your fingertips. Number one, anything that the state agency spends money on or does in a public reservoir 
is an open record. Um, so you can you can get a record on every single thing that is done um, within that reservoir if you need it. Um, the hard part is you have to be able to understand it's written in a scientific language. So if you get a record of a report or something like that, you have to be able to read it, understand it, um, to know what's exactly happening. You know, the things that we get a lot of questions, of course, about spraying. We get a lot of questions about stalking largemouth bass fingerlings across the, the country. And, you know, most, most fisheries don't need those things done. And it takes reading into the reports to figure out why that is. Um, the other thing that I would tell everybody, Bailey, is at least once a year, if not multiple times a year, you have um, the opportunity to provide public comments on any regulation change that's occurring. Um, and then whenever you have any of your, like like I'm part of the, uh, you know, Texas Freshwater Fisheries Advisory Committee. And the committee, you know, meets and we discuss uh, what our recommendations for Texas Parks and Wildlife are for any new regulation change. After we put our comments in, then it becomes open for all people. And whenever I do a comment, let's say like we had one um, about tilapia, they were going to change the regulations by stocking tilapia in private lakes uh, two years ago. And we get dozens of open comments, and that should be hundreds, if not thousands of open comments. So, you know, participating in that in that section of your your agency commission. And, and like I said, it happens at least once, if not twice a year to where you can go to, to the state office, you can select your time, you can get your 10 minutes and you can stand up and, and say exactly what you want and put in a public record, or you can submit those comments online if you can't be there that day and they'll be read out loud. And that's, that's really a, a benefit to everybody that, that isn't used enough. Yeah. And, and, that's one thing I thought has been interesting, and that's uh, I'm I'm glad you said that because that's one thing I've actually acknowledged too, as well as the, the participations. I think the amount of folks that acknowledge certain issues are there, mm -hmm. uh, and I think there's a solution to an extent, like dependent on the state of like like you're talking about having the the personnel having these open sessions to ask questions. I think one of the issues there is that. I think to an extent the departments like say I'll take New York for an example, they use these very traditional and outdated ways of communicating that they're going to have these open sessions. Whereas everybody now is on like email or social media when they I get their, yeah. their information where I think it's just the message isn't reaching because of their way of, of trying to communicate. Yeah. yeah. And I think that's really yeah. it. Um, that could be as easy as just bringing in somebody that's, you know, more up to modern time of trying to communicate such, which I think could be an easy thing to, to change if that's like an issue that's not just in New York. But um, that's something I think people need to take advantage of if they have the opportunity and know it's there, um, whether it's showing up in person or like you mentioned, sending emails, because I mean, I could our buddy uh, on the show um, has his own podcast, Alex Rudd. Um, he, he's mentioned how he either writes letters or emails to their Tennessee fishing game. Uh, yep. And they are very communicative in terms of getting back to them or like they don't have an answer. Like they're like, we acknowledge your, your statement question. We will get back to you on this. And they actually do get back. So it seems like certain States are really good at this communication, but I think some could use some work and I don't think it's their fault. It's just their methods. 
Yeah, I mean, um, uh, all of them are improving. Um, you know, 10 years ago, it was, it, it was much more difficult. And like you're saying, a lot of the technology usage has increased. If you go, even like Arkansas, Arkansas is the prime example. If you right now live in Arkansas and you want to know about your fisheries, every district within Arkansas has a a month or a weekly um, newsletter that goes to your email that tells you everything that's going on. I got one today about a, a reservoir called Greer's Ferry in Arkansas, and they were talking about the Threadfin Shad and Greer's and Greer's Ferry. I mean that. Who's even heard of it? And but I signed up for all of them, of course. Um, but yeah, a lot of the states are going to those things. Um, of course, if you just get on the website, um, there's a public notice about the the legislative session. So you know you you can see these things when the meetings are going to be. And like you say, Bailey, it, it does take effort on on both parts, right? Like they've got to publish them in places that you can see them, but you got to go look for them. Yeah. So to get to get back to like talking about this biology conservation efforts, et cetera. Right. One, one of the points you made earlier of introducing new species to try to regulate another issue and how mm-hmm. that could be very, it could go one of two ways. And typically most of the time it's been done. It doesn't go the right way. It's intended. Uh, sometimes they, it doesn't, they, it's intended in one way and it actually comes out better. And sometimes that we've seen it's come out way worse, but um, what are like, what are obviously you stated the reasons, but what are some like big hazards of and detriments of trying to introduce a certain bait fish or certain species to try to regulate something else? Because I don't think there's been many case studies of it being effective. Yeah. And it's, um, that is less common today than it was in like 1980. Yeah. Um, you know, there, there was a lot of kind of the golden age of the seventies and eighties where it was like, let's just experiment. Let's see what we can do. I mean, uh, I, I was laughing because in the seventies and eighties, I mean, Texas was stocking peacock, peacock bass and trying to get them established. I mean, it was, it was the wild west. Um, and, and, you know, there's still species like grass carp um, that are utilized and most states now use triploid grass carp, which means they have three sets of chromosomes. They are they are sterile fish. They cannot produce viable hmm. eggs or or milt. Um, so they're sterile fish. Um, so so there's some there's some things that were learned in the 80s and 90s that are now being used. And um, the hard part is, you know, you have to decide um, is the control method worth the risk of, of what's occurring. And in most situations now, it is not. Um, you know, fisheries management, unfortunately, has moved towards more environmental management, as in, uh, you know, our, our agency folks are spending a lot of time uh, on water quality, habitat, um, you know, and, and a lot less time on stocking new fish and trying new things. It's, it's more of we figured out what works. We're going to stick to it and we're not going to, you know, we're not going to have any issues. Um, you know, the other, the other problem is our reservoirs are kind of aging at the same rate throughout the country. And so I always try to make the point that like, yeah, the seventies and eighties, you know, reservoirs were brand new and we could try new things. And now uh, we're seeing through the aging process that all of our reservoirs are becoming habitat limited they're either becoming super nutrient rich or nutrient poor. Uh, they're becoming very silted in, and it all, that all depends on what's happening within the watershed. But it's creating, you know, now where our fisheries managers 
or having to react to the 70s, 80s management, as well as just the age of the reservoir. And so they're tasked with much more difficult um, and widespread issues such as habitat loss or, or you know, even like blue-green algae. And then we have, um, unfortunately, some invasive species, you know, especially like that uh, Tennessee River area, you know, you've got uh, the Asian carp species, they're, they're knocking on the door of the Great Lakes any day. Um, so there's, you know, there's some real issues that, that we have to address and none of them are by stalking at other fish. I mean, that, that's just not going to happen. I did see something. Um, I think it was browse. It was on YouTube actually, because I was looking at the specific issue. I got thought and of course nerded out and it went on an hour of just, you know, tangent of Google search and YouTube, but there was a video of, I can't remember the location up North, but they were, you're talking about getting this Asian carp knocking on the door of the great lakes. Um, and there is a specific lock that I can't remember the location. You might know it. Uh, is it Chicago? They, maybe uh, where they have like this basically essentially an electric fence underwater. Yeah. Right. Illinois River. I believe yeah. it's in Chicago, Lake Michigan. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, what you're, is, you're right. What's the, <clears throat> the proof of that? Like in terms of is that going to be – is that the fail safe for like not allowing these carp to – like if that fails – are these carp going to get into the Great Lakes? Uh, no, not necessarily, but it does. It, it's kind of the last prevention method um, that you have right there. And then, you know, the other thing that's being done a lot is is DNA water sampling to where the technology with DNA is increasing so quickly that now we can take a, a drop of water and tell you what fish live in that environment. And so, you know, it's basically the the acoustic barriers and electric barriers are just buying time to where technology can get us to better management practices or, or monitoring practices. Um, you know, the unfortunate part with the Asian carps, you know, the problem didn't start in 2020. The problem started in 1980. Um, you know, those fish escaped fish farms. Um, those fish went into the United States for specific reasons and they've escaped. And then, you know, through time monitoring populations, they've, they've migrated very quickly and it's a cyclic thing. You know, you're going to have uh, places like Kentucky Lake that, that, you know, they really went through a tough time with Asian carp and now it's self-limiting. And, you know, you go back to carrying capacity and things like that. It's self-limiting a little bit, but yeah, I mean that the electric barrier is, is kind of one of those last hopes to keep those fish out of the Great Lakes. Yeah, I don't even want it like this the idea of getting that notice of like, hey, Asian carp are now in the Great Lakes would just kind of petrifies me. Oh. The thought well, of that. And that's the thing though, like I'm pretty sure they found a few in the Great Lakes, but they've been the triploid ones because they've escaped from like fish farms and floods that get in the streams and they wash in the lakes. But I'm pretty sure that they've actually found like biomass of them in like the DNA water sampling. They just haven't found them actually in the lakes yet mm. for whatever right. reason. But I, I, I have read a couple papers where they've had biomass of them. They just don't know if it's the triploids from like farm ponds and stuff that wash in the streams or if it's actually like the silver and buffalo carp. It's intriguing. We have a question here. Uh, you okay. brought up the TVA. I said, with natural nutrient deposits starting to deplete in older impoundments like the TVA, 
is there a way to supplement nutrients into these impoundments? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you can use, um, you can use agriculture fertilizer. Um, you know, we do it a lot in small impoundment management. There's a risk there, of course, because you're adding nitrogen and phosphorus and uh, potassium and things like that into the water. Um, and it, it's got a cost to it. Um, you also have almost everything that you do within a reservoir is reactive to whatever's happening on the, on the watershed. So a lot of uh, nutrient issues start on land, not in water. Um, and with urbanization and things like that, we're, we're really changing the culture of how land is used, moving away from you know farmland that maybe was non-grazed to farmland that's you know highly developed and now to urban concrete that just pours water off of it and it carries whatever it carries in it. So you know a lot of how do we address nutrient issues starts in watershed and how do we how do we use the land around it? But there are there are fertilizers, there are nutrients that could be added uh, to a system. It's just going to flow through awful quick through a TVA system. We have another one here from uh, Andrew Watson okay. that asks, how do daily changes in water level and flow direction in river reservoirs affect bass behavior? That's a great question. So situational, right? Like this, this is the, the toughest part. Um, you know, and, and also it depends on species, um, you know, depending on which biologist you talk to, there's anywhere from five black bass species up to 19. Um, you know, so whenever you divide smallmouth into one species or three species, it, it gets confusing. Um, but if we're talking about just change of water level, a fish has a home range. Um, largemouth have home ranges built on geographic markers. So physical things that they can see um, that are built in within their home range. And they're going to use those throughout the day. And if it's a predictable water level change or flow change, they're going to know how to use those geographic markers in that home range to still, uh, you know, select and, and capture forage correctly. Your job as an angler is to figure out exactly what is that next habitat that that fish would use and how big is that home range uh, to maximize how many you're going to catch. Now, smallmouth and spotted bass, um, they're more nomadic species. They don't really use geographic markers as often. They use a lot more contour and bottom uh, composition. And so, but it's going to be very similar as in those fish do the same things throughout the day. They don't, they don't randomly show up on a place. Um, so predicting is, is this water level change something that's predictable annually, daily, whatever it is, if it's tidal. Um, and then is that direction always the same or does it change? That would help kind of answer that fast behavior question, but it's going to be predictable every day. That's some really good knowledge. Uh, I, I remember we, we don't have to dive into here, uh, but we've had shows on where we've talked about like these, these reservoirs, like a, like a TVA, for example, that can fluctuate, you know, based yep. on whatever the, the TVA is feeling like doing with that body of water that day and how that can affect spawns. Like if, if fish come up to spawn mm -hmm. and they drop the water, how that can be a detriment for that year. Um, that, that's an interesting conversation. I think that one that could literally almost be a whole episode within itself, uh, well, if you, if you think about fish spawning, um, you know, a male builds the nest. We all know that, right? A male builds the nest. That could take up to a week. A female 
she comes and deposits part of her eggs in that nest, and then she leaves. That'll take a day um, or maybe several hours. And then that male's going to guard the egg, and depending on water temperature, that egg can stay an egg for 48 hours up to 10 days. And so, you know, if you have warm enough water temperature, um, you know, it, it would have to drop very quickly for this whole process to occur within, let's say, seven days. Uh, now you have colder water temperature, and now you've got a window that's like 14 to 18 days of build the nests, put the eggs in, guard the, the eggs. Once the eggs are free swimming, you know, they hatch anywhere from two to 10 days. Uh, they're going to start being free swimming like two more days later. So, you know, you can, you can have a pair, get to a bed, and then have those fry leave that bed within four days if temperature was correct. So that water fluctuation isn't, isn't as impactful as something that would take 18 days. That, that would be more difficult. And then you have other species like crappie. Um, I don't know how many, how many of y'all's fans are crappie fishermen, but crappie are one of my favorite species to manage, but they will literally just go to the shore. If the water drops or a cold front comes in, they will leave and they just won't even spawn this year. They'll just be done and they'll reabsorb their eggs and call it, call it a year where, That's you know, largemouth, the, they'll take another attempt in a couple of weeks if they need to. And, you know, it's a misnomer. Um, you know, a female largemouth typically spawns with two to five males. She doesn't just spawn with one. Um, so she'll drop part of her eggs and then leave, find another male spawn. And so she, um, it's, it's kind of like a, an evolutionary process to where it's better to spawn over a wider window so that you have fry being produced in optimal conditions with a number of males so that you have the strongest fry possible. So evolutionarily, female largemouth um, have evolved to not put themselves in a situation where water level, temperature, a weak male, any of that would affect the survival of their offspring. Oh man, my, my mind That's is awesome. blown right now. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so so cool. <laughs> now, now I have a question because Bailey and I live up here in Buffalo and we live on Lake Erie, one of the best smallmouth fisheries. One of the best and most underrated smallmouth fisheries, right? Out of Buffalo, New York. So do smallmouth basically have the same spawn window? Like they can make a nest, drop eggs, and have fry within four to eight days. But also do smallmouth have the same spawning tendencies where the big females will hop from nest to nest and lay them in different areas? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, so <coughs> whenever you think about a, a big female, a big female has larger eggs and fewer of them than a small female. A small female will have more eggs per pound of body weight, but they'll be smaller. So a big fish... Um, it would have the advantage of putting those eggs out early and then those fry hatching and being larger than the smaller fish's fry. Mm -hmm. So, you know, as fish increase in size, they will spawn earlier and earlier within the year. And then they will spread their eggs out a little bit longer uh, to make sure that they get viable offspring. But yeah, they'll, they'll do multiple spawns. Um, what you don't, you know, you don't see typically it lasting three months. What you see is, you know, a largemouth or smallmouth going to a nest, selecting a nest, dropping eggs. Once they're, once they're covered, she will move off and she may recover for a day or two, 
and then find another nest. And that first spawn is usually about 50% of the eggs. And then it kind of subsequently reduces by 50% every time to where, you know, that last spawn, there's really very few eggs. Hmm. That is super cool. I mean, just the, the note of two to five different male, I, that, that blew my mind. Strong also, independent women we have in these lakes. There you go. There you go. <laughs> Survival of the fittest, I guess. Right. I uh, okay. So we we have a question here um, from Mr. Bradley Holman. Which, by the way, congrats to Brad. Uh, he qualified for the Bassmaster Elite Series this year. So congrats. We've had Brad on the show before, uh, which we're long overdue to get him back on the show. His second time on the Elite Series. Right. His That's second. Right. He made it back. He's back. Um, so he, he makes a, a sarcastic comment here, but I'm going to actually turn this into a legitimate question. Uh, he talks about like his live scope going to be the death of all bass species swimming North America, which some people actually like legitimately believe uh, as crazy as that sounds. Um, but I want to rope that into a legitimate question of we, we talked about a little bit with, you know, with COVID. I mean, it's people have talked about it all over the place since COVID, you know, obviously participation participation has increased at an unprecedented number. Um, and we, we saw the statistics at the summit that we were both at. Um, so obviously participation is, is way up there. This technology is becoming more easily accessible, like a forward facing sonar, like a live scope, uh, and more people are having on their boats. One of my questions is from a, a, a forward facing sonar. You hear some people say that I think these fish are dodging <coughs> basically their sonar, like their forward facing sonar when they put it in the cone these fish are running away from it. Like they're feeling it with enough right. pressure on a lake. Is it, is it possible for these fish to feel that type of deal and be able to be that receptive of something like a forward facing sonar to basically skirt that, if that makes sense. Okay. Um, the short answer to the question is do bass feel things in their environment? And it's absolutely um, the bass felt you coming from a hundred yards away. It felt every component of your boat down its lateral line. And there's a lot of research that shows, you know, just circling a bass one time, 50% of those fish will swim away no matter what. Um, so the truth is your live scope is only making you aware of what's always happened in the past. Whenever you pull a boat up to an area, you move fish all the time. Um, the, the forward-facing sonar is just showing you that. There's a lot of state agencies that are right now doing research into the vulnerability of fish, specifically crappie or large, um, you know, offshore largemouth to things like live sonar. And the majority of them are, are coming to the same conclusion, which is you have to be a damn good angler on the front of that boat to get that fish to react to bite. It's going to speed up the process of finding fish, but it's not going to make you able to catch more fish, you still have to be an angler that, that can do that. Um, it's also, like you're saying, like you have to close that gap and get close enough to that fish to, to make it happen. So people that have the skill to not get on top of the fish are still advantageous over you, you know, the number of fish they catch. Uh, but, but no, I mean, the height of, of bass fishing in the United States happened in the 90s. We have less bass fishermen today than we did in, in the 90s. Um, now they're more skilled uh, as, as a population. COVID increased the number of fishing license sales, um, 
but not to a historic level of bass anglers and definitely not to a historic level of consumptive anglers, you know, people that are, are actually removing fish from a reservoir. Um, that happened in the 70s. So, you know, we've got to really, we've got to caveat these things in the fact that, yeah, there might be more bass boats sold right now. That's because it's it's the most popular, uh, you know, sport fish in America. And there may be more fishing license sold than during COVID than there was in the previous 10 years. But that doesn't mean that necessarily those anglers are staying in the sport and competing, you know, in, in tournaments and buying things like live sonar. You have to be a, a, a pretty uh, skilled angler to maximize all of those pieces of components. And then I think that, that once again, we're learning what we've been doing for 20 or 30 years whenever we're, we're fishing has actually been scaring fish. Um, and and the, the truth is that, you know, whenever your granddad told you to be quiet in the boat, they can hear you. That, that was true. I mean, a fish has a lateral line. A lateral line on a fish is, is little holes that have hairs inside them. And it connects directly to the spinal cord. So that is designed to feel vibrations and changes within the water. So to think that a 20-foot bass boat running a trolling motor, you know, and, and slamming a cooler and all those things isn't moving those fish, that's crazy. I mean, they definitely, they can feel your crankbait, uh, you know, from 100 feet away. I mean, mm-hmm. they can feel it. So I guess my question off of this is then, uh, I wrote a report probably like, eight months to a year ago about Connecticut, which is a state up here in the Northeast, as we all know, they're actually looking at, yeah, they're looking (laughs) at putting in regulations for restricting bass tournament creel limits because Mm -hmm. of forward facing sonar. Do you think that's something that a lot of states are going to try to do and implement? Uh, Yeah, probably. I, I would think so. You know, what we have to realize about a traditional five fish tournament is that we are culling fish throughout the day and we're selecting <coughs> exceptional individuals out of that population. And then we're bringing them still to a weigh-in. And the unfortunate truth is there is delayed mortality. And depending on whose study you want to read, that's anywhere from 50% up to 90%. And a lot of state agencies consider whenever they write that permit and they know how many boats are going out, they consider that a five fish limit where all the fish are going to, are going to die. That's just the truth of it because we don't have, we don't have a consumptive population anymore. We don't have people that are consuming edible size fish. And instead our biggest uh, non-natural mortality does come from these tournament anglers who are trying their best. They're doing everything they can and they've got the best uh, equipment possible, but we're culling fish. We're trying to catch the five biggest that we possibly can, and we're moving them to another location, and some of them are dying. So, yes, a state like Connecticut um, would probably put in some sort of regulation on that because it takes a long time to grow a trophy-sized fish in those in those northern climates. Um, you know, a state like Texas or maybe Florida, probably not. If they're going to do any restrictions, it's going to come in the summer whenever fish are stressed because of temperature, low oxygen, things like that. That was uh, so my to... next question is like, what is the preferred seasonality for fish survival in a five fish creel limit in a tournament? Yeah. I mean, the majority of mortality that happens uh, in a, in a five fish or a live way in event 
is because of time in the live well where ammonia increases um, and oxygen decreases. And that's going to happen more rapidly in the summer. In the summer months, as water temperatures increase, the potential to hold oxygen decreases in that water. Now, we think of oxygen, like for us, we breathe 20% oxygen. Um, a fish is going to, to have mortality starting anything below four parts per thousand oxygen. So we're talking about a very small amount of oxygen anyways. So as we get towards summer, the potential for that water to, to hold that dissolved oxygen decreases. Therefore, the time in that live well becomes more dangerous. You also have um, every time a fish breathes, kind of how the gill works, they take water in through their mouth. The water goes past the gill filament. The blood runs opposite through a gill filament. The blood's capturing oxygen out of the water, but it's releasing ammonia whenever it does it. So it's actually it's actually removing kind of like if we're peeing, like the urea and the ammonia cycle, right? It's removing the nitrogen out of that fish's blood and putting it into the water at the same time it captures water. That's what the gill does. So whenever you put a fish in a live well and you set a timer, no matter what, your oxygen's going down and your ammonia's going up. So in that case, what is... What are the steps you can do as a tournament angler to help increase the survival rate of the bass on like a 90 degree day in August or a 120 degree day in August in Texas? That's a great question, Andrew. Okay. Uh, First thing, you should put a little salt in your water. Uh, Salt is a natural antibiotic for fish. It makes them secrete slime, which protects uh, the exterior of the fish. All freshwater fish are always looking for salt. So a little bit of salt, and we're talking, um, it, it's hard, but you're you're talking about like half of a cup for your 30-gallon live well, okay? okay? So put a little salt in there. Um, next thing is you can add ice to it, but you don't want to drop the temperature more than five degrees. If you drop the temperature more than five degrees, that's a thermal shock that causes a lot of other issues with the fish. Uh, so if the water temperature is 90 or above, uh, what I would do is I would leave my my pump running to where I'm, in, I'm putting in new water all the time. So I'm adding as much oxygen as possible. I'm going to add ice um, periodically, not all at once. I'm not going to take a 40-pound bag and put it in the water. That will kill the fish. If so you maybe drop like down, fill up some bottles and freeze it and kind of drop them in there and let it slow. Periodically, yeah. right. You want five degrees. That's what you want, five degrees. Now, a quick hint, if, if I'm in Texas and I'm fishing shallow water, there's a lot of vegetation, things like that, that water temperature in shallow is going to be warmer than deep water. So if you're really concerned about the health of the fish, you would take a short boat ride periodically as well and, and bring in some cooler water from deeper and definitely watch the water input coming into your live well and make sure that you don't get any vegetation stuck on that input screen because that will shut down uh, all the water coming in. But adding new water continuously is going to be important. The next thing is have a little bit of hydrogen peroxide with you. Um, Hydrogen peroxide immediately adds oxygen to water. It also heats water, so you don't add a lot. We're we're not talking about dumping a bottle in there. We're talking a couple cc's. It will increase the oxygen. It will will de-stress the fish just a little bit, um, and that will save you if you get into a jam. 
Now, yeah. what kind of salt are we adding into the libel? We had a question here. Uh, oh, Andrew Watson asked iodized, but like. There's... Yeah, any table salt is good to go. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. You just need salt. Yeah. Yeah, Andy, that was something that uh, when we had Mark Menendez on the show, as he was mentioning, because he has a, a biology background of yeah. adding that hydrogen peroxide, I believe is what you mentioned, to the, yeah. the libel. Yeah. Now, this is going to be awesome because I feel like all of our viewers who have bass boats are going to be sending us pictures of salt and hydrogen per, <laughs> hydrogen peroxide in their boats. I'm like, this is awesome. <laughs> if we can save yeah, a few fish's lives, the better. So, yeah, there's a lot yeah. of people nerding out, I think, right now that are watching. <laughs> so, something that was actually really cool that I picked up, when you talk about the ice situation, uh, when you talk about how it's way better to take uh, – when you don't take a 40 pound bag of ice and, and drop it, obviously you're going to kill that fish. One thing I picked up from a good buddy of mine who is a full-time smallmouth guy in St. Lawrence river, especially with the summer smallmouth where you need to use ice, especially if you're fishing, you know, 50, 60 foot of water the temperature, obviously is like big difference from the bottom to the surface when you're in talking like July, August, his name's Dean Meckis. And one thing he showed me is he takes big uh, like ice cream containers and fills them. Uh, and freezes them and puts those in there because they melt slower. And he said that way you only put one in a day and it, it melts super, way slower than say a 40 pound bag of just small ice cubes that melt much faster. I thought that was super intriguing about yeah, like, like from, a, from a melt rate standpoint. I know that's not like hard to dictate, but you see more guys. Dean did this. I put this on his story the other day. Is like there's certain things you can do now with your your fish finders and live wells just have temperature gauges in there, where you yeah. can continually monitor that, which is su- I think is super cool that people. Yeah, you out. should be doing that. I mean, you, you the hard part is if we're talking a 90 degree day and we're competing, you know, eight hours. Uh, you know, we catch a fish at 7 a.m. We put it in the live well and we start reducing that temperature, and then at some point throughout the day, hopefully, we're culling that fish. And if we're calling it at two o'clock, that new fish that we just caught is going into that cold water. And so you're going to have a temperature shock there. Um, and, and really a temperature shock of 10 degrees on a fish is going to have a delayed mortality event. And so it's it looks good to us, but the stress that that fish just went through, we'll never know. Um, we won't see that necessarily. Now a 20 degree temperature difference, and you're going to have a dead fish by weigh in. Holy crap. That's wild. Yeah. <laughs> That's nuts. Okay. So Andy, do you have anything else on that before we keep rolling here? Oh, let's keep rolling. Like I'm, okay. I'm loving this though. So. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I had up. So, so my initial question about like this pressure with live scope, et cetera, mm-hmm. that started this whole train of thought here. I, I had a part B and that was with, more boats that are being, you talked about having maybe less anglers, but we have more talent amongst anglers right. and being able to find these fish faster, be more effective. Does pressure on a fishery damage fish population or do these fish populations, are they just adjusting to the pressure and behaving differently? Yeah. Uh, the majority of fisheries, they're just adjusting. The majority of fisheries, we're not damaging because we're not consumptive. Right. If we were going out and we were still taking, you know, like whenever, you know, the original Bassmaster stuff, we had 15 fish and we're going to fillet every one of them. That becomes an issue. You know, you you have evolved, um, you know, and now that 
we've had five fish limit since, you know, the mid nineties. And, uh, you know, that, that evolved because state agencies set a krill limit. And so that's what the tournament organizations could legally do. There's some state agencies that are at a three fish limit right now. There's others that are six or 10, um, you know, so we still use five fish because now that's, that's what we standardize towards. Um, but, you know, whenever we're talking about it, it's, it's highly dependent on who's competing and how efficient they are at capturing those large fish and taking care of them. The good news is your live well is better than it's ever been. The good news is um, your fisheries agencies are better at assessing the fisheries and understanding permits and how many people should be competing and things like that. And they track mortality. Every time your fisheries agency goes and does a survey, they're tracking mortality. They're looking at how many fish are in each age class. So, um, you know, I look at these reports all the time. Uh, they may have 12 years. They would have how many fish they catch, and they would then assess annually how many fish are naturally dying. And natural mortality is still much more higher uh, than anything human-caused um, whenever we're talking about tournaments. But they can assess that whenever we have things like, um, you know, the tagged fish that, that some reservoirs will use. The fisheries agents are collecting that data to try to determine if that fish is a consumptive fish that somebody's catching and, and eating, if that fish is showing up in a tournament, or if that fish is never caught, um, you know, and maybe it's natural mortality, but they're trying to define mortality using those studies. So I think that the answer to the question, Bailey, like, yes, we're better anglers. Yes, we have better technology. Yes, we have better uh, survey methods in fishery science. And we're tracking things like we've never had before where they're aging the fish, they're checking mortality annually, and they're coming up with real solutions on how many tournaments should we have a year. Yeah, I actually heard, uh, I don't want to say rumor, but I've heard through, like, through the grapevine that like the TVA or like the, the folks that uh, oversee that waterway are looking into specifically that, like a Lake Chickamauga that has 14,000 boats on it every single day of the week into like limiting the amount of tournaments that you can run on that fishery. Um, that's something I think that's pretty, that's pretty cool. And I think that's something that is, is needed, especially from like a regional standpoint around the country. Uh, like how many things, how many fish are being brought back to the scales? Uh, and you, and you could argue, argue about certain, you know, trails starting to pave a path for something like this, where you don't need to bring five fish to the scales where I mean, like Andy, I mean, like from a, a small mouth standpoint up here, a lot of the summer tournaments from the Great Lakes, they they run three fish limits, yeah. where something that's so competitive, but like at least you're 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 eliminating the number from not totally, but you're eliminating the total number of fish that are being you know like you're talking about delayed mortality or just that are dying in the live well from trying to show five yeah. big smallmouth in, in a live yeah. well when it's ninety degrees outside. It, well, it, there's there's other things like fizzing. Yeah. Um, you know, I. I look at the, the catchway release format and I say one of the biggest accomplishments of the catchway release format is that you don't have to fizz fish. Um, it takes a fish five minutes of atmospheric change to develop barotrauma, which is what is, you know, the inflation of the swim bladder. So if I were to catch a fish and bring it up, do whatever I'm going to do, weigh, measure, release that fish, and it goes back to the depth that was originally caught, within five minutes, that fish would not have barotrauma. So then that's a fish that we don't have to fizz. If we don't have to fizz a fish, we increase its survivability quite a bit. 
So I have a question when it comes to fizzing smallmouth. Like I am, I'm a smallmouth guide up here in Buffalo. It's what I do full time. And I almost refuse to fish summertime tournaments because of mortality rate with smallmouth. How important is it to use a different fizz needle with every single fish? Yeah. So I, I wrote an article for Wired to Fish years ago talking about this. I personally would use a different needle every fish if possible. Um, there's a, there's a couple of reasons. Number one, a needle is, it's just like a hook, right? It's sharpened, but a needle sharpened to have one penetration. If you ever watch your doctor or veterinarian, whenever they load an injectable into a syringe, they use one needle, they discard that needle. They put a new needle on to give you or your animal that, that uh, vaccine. The reason is because you'll have micro bins in that needle. So you're creating a micro damage into that fish. But more importantly, you're taking the exterior and putting it inside. Uh, that means any bacterial transfer you're doing. And the more fish you take that from and put that into, the more times you have the likelihood to introduce bacteria into the swim bladder. The swim bladder is a closed organ. Um, you know, the reason they have barotrauma is because there's no communication between the oxygen absorption and uh, in the swim bladder. So they can't regulate it like that, uh, which means if you create bacteria within that over time, that's going to probably be pretty detrimental. So a new needle would be great or a sterile needle um, would be, would be okay as well. So like to sterilize the needle, just basically like wipe it down with like an alcohol swab to like get any like, bacteria off of it that you could and let it air dry like how would you like, <laughs> no i mean andrew it would it would uh usually sterilization's done with heat and pressure buddy um, that, that, so, that's what i figured i just thought i would ask so yeah i mean that would be awesome um if i could recommend that but if i'm trying to be like a stickler i would say you know i mean that, that's probably not going to be sterile that's no. going to be like, better than I nothing like, i feel like i'm back in health class right now yeah. Yeah, are you saying no. are you saying that us anglers are the number one reason we're spreading smallmouth STDs? Is because yeah, we're <laughs> so I, no. I have another question though when it comes to fizzing fish. Is it better to fizz them through the side and like remove a scale or go through between the crushers in the mouth? It's better to go on the side. Okay. You're you have zero risk of ever penetrating another organ to get into the swim bladder through the side. If you go through the mouth, you do have the risk of penetrating another organ because when the swim bladder inflates, it pushes things in it and how the cavity of those organs work. It's going to push them forward. Um, there's a chance that you would go through the heart. That would be the worst one, of course. But there's there's several organs that you could go through before you get to the swim bladder if you go through the mouth. Um, mm. Now, if you want to talk about a virus, Bailey, and you guys want to nerd out a little bit, um, one of the things we did with the Major League Fishing Fish Management Division two years ago is we helped uh, the state of Michigan do some research on largemouth bass virus being in smallmouth bass. And so while we were at St. Clair, um, have, have you guys ever caught a smallmouth that has like a red lesion on its side? Almost mm -hmm. looks like a lamprey injury, but it's not mm -hmm. a lamprey. You know it's not. It's like missing scales and it's kind of nasty. Yeah, so... What we did was our MLF anglers uh, during practice, they just counted how many fish were they catching with those lesions on their side. 
And then afterwards, um, on day one of competition, we assigned certain anglers to live well fish that had those lesions because we knew who was kind of catching them during practice. And they brought those fish back and we donated them to Michigan. And uh, the state veterinary lab took those and isolated largemouth bass virus from that infection. And so uh, Major League Fishing helped kind of collect these fish. It was a big cooperative effort from a lot of different tournaments and, and state agencies uh, within Michigan. But we were able to isolate smallmouth bass virus or largemouth bass virus in a smallmouth. And the kind of sad part about that is, um, you know, largemouth bass virus started kind of in the southern United States and tournament angling was one of the number one spreaders of that virus. And so when you said like we as tournament fishermen are, are you know, <laughs> transferring this virus, unfortunately, we might be right. Um, you know, you, you think about COVID, you know, we all had COVID on the mind for three years, um, felt like three years at least, but we all had it on the mind. And what we learned was whenever you're in a small confined space, um, you're more likely to catch a virus. Well, if we have a largemouth bass virus infected fish and we put a live well and we transport it to a weigh-in and then we have a live release boat, that fish has the ability to be in a very small environment with several other fish and transfer that virus very quickly. So through the catchway release format, we we were able to capture some fish and Major League Fishing was able to help uh, kind of show that this virus had switched from largemouth to smallmouth. And then this year, um, we actually have a grad student at Auburn that we're kind of replicating that um, that kind of similar research, but we're doing it on Alabama bass and like the Coosa River chain. That, that is wild. Yeah, it's super cool. Um, we're, we're going almost an hour and 15 minutes here, and I feel like I have questions to go on for days. So I have... I have one or two more I want to ask, and we might need to actually make this into a part two where we get you back on the show to keep okay. yeah. asking some questions. But, Andrew, do you have anything before I ask the last couple of questions? Man, I have an entire list of smallmouth questions, so, like, we're going to have to have a part two. Yeah. So, like... well, we're we're going to have to just – we'll just schedule out the next show here, here Steve. <laughs> um, so people look forward to having more Steve on the show. I warned everybody when we started this that you're going to hear more mm -hmm. of Steve after tonight. Yeah. Um, so one of the questions I have is this one's more kind of simple, straight to the point, but what are the biggest keys to growing bigger fish in your fishery? Okay. Uh, number one, genetics. Number two, reducing competition. Number three, forage. Number four, water quality. And number five, habitat. Those okay. are the five keys. Now you it's mentioned one simple. there. Now, when you talk about competition, you mentioned re removing competition. Are you, does that include from one, like say a pike or a walleye, like stuff that competes with the bass for forage? Or are you talking removing smaller bass, like especially if you have a large population of small yeah. bass? Is that both. Same? both? Both. You have a carrying capacity of predators. And um, let's make it easy. Let's say it's 100 pounds per acre. If I have a 100 pounds per acre, and I want to grow 10 pound bass, I can grow 10 of them per acre. That's it. That's the conversation. That's, that's how simple it is. That's what I do on a daily basis. Um, you know, in private league management here in Texas, Southern United States, um, it's very, very difficult to make it that simple in a public reservoir because you have so many different user groups, you have so many different species and you have open systems. So you have new fish migrating in every day. 
um, in, a, in a reservoir that's closed, a closed system, it becomes much more easy. Um, there's even, you know, if we really want to get crazy about, you know, small impoundment management, there's fisheries that we make that are all female largemouth bass. So there's no reproduction occurring. Um, whenever I was in grad school, I did my graduate research on creating sterile largemouth bass and crappie so that we could stock them at the exact number we want in the fishery and we could raise them to the size we want them and never have reproduction. Uh, so, yeah, we can do some Frankenstein stuff in the private sector. That's so cool. Now, uh, I have... Oh, go ahead, Bailey. Sorry. No, you're good. How's that? I have a forage question. So up here in New York and the Figure Lakes, we had basically sister lakes, and they're two entirely... Two entirely different fisheries. One was like a trophy bass fishery for New York. So it was loaded with like four to six pound fish. But the difference between the lakes was that it had smaller like bluegill crappie perch in it. And then you could go 15 miles down the road to the other lake. And it had an overabundance of small largemouth, but giant like bluegills, crappie perch. <laughs> so is there a correlation there? Like if you have a smaller bait fish forage population, does that help generate bigger fish as opposed to like having a stunted bait fish population? Does that help generate bigger fish than having a population with big forage in it and smaller bass? Okay. So Andrew, your observation is correct um, in the fact that the fishery with the larger sunfish had smaller bass on average. That observation was correct, but, but how you got to it was the part that was kind of off. Um, so what happens is you think about how often does a forage fish reproduce, right? Let's say a bluegill has five reproductions a year. Um, so those offspring at some point compete with their parents for food. So the less offspring you have because they're consumed by smaller bass that eat small forage, um, what that results in is more forage available for those original parents. Therefore, they grow larger. So it's kind of chicken before the egg there. Um, on the trophy fishery, what you're seeing is a, a definitive line in the food chain where the fish can no longer, the forage fish can no longer grow above that because they're consumed. Um, so they're, as soon as they reach, let's say five inches, something is eating them. Where on the other side, there's no bass in the reservoir that can consume a five-inch sunfish, so instead they're consumed at one inch, because that's what the bass can consume. Got it. Yeah. That makes that makes complete sense. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. We have uh, our last uh, viewer question here, and I want to let the the viewers know that I have been writing down a bunch of these questions you guys have asked, so they're not getting skipped over. We're gonna save them, and I have them written down to save for part two. We bring Steve back. I don't want to. I don't want to force Steve to stay on here for five, six hours, which we could totally do. But I would not put him through that misery. Uh, I've got, we'll... I've got a five a.m. wake up and drive to Athens, Texas, to select our next Hall of Fame member for our Texas Freshwater Fishing Hall of Fame. Or I would have stayed on for five hours. My <laughs> guys, if if you want to hear about a tough time, um, whenever I taught fisheries management and conservation at Tarleton State. Um, I, I still have my private lake management company and they asked me to teach this course. And I said, I'll do it one day for four hours. And so you would show up to my class and I, I had no notes. I had no book. You listened to me talk for four hours about whatever the subject was. 
and you just take notes as quick as you can. That's awesome. I would have yeah, and then like our that. final was an oral final where you had five minutes to teach me something you learned this year. If you didn't go five minutes, I got to ask all the questions I wanted until we got to five minutes. Oh, man, that's sick. You would have been the cool professor. Yeah. I, I, I hate written good. exams. That would have been oh, perfect. me too. I didn't want to grade them. <laughs> yeah, it's, 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 so oral. Is that we're going to talk this through. <laughs> that's awesome. All right, so – Last, last of your question of the night, then I have one more, and then we have one okay. last fun question. We'll ask you, okay. then we'll wrap this thing up here. Um, it's from Chris Flay, and, it, and he asks, and I feel like a lot of people have asked this question, um, is why don't more states adopt the slot system like Texas does with Lake Fork? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And the simplest answer, uh, Chris, is going to be that whenever you have your state regulations, if they're standardized across the entire state, it's easier for you to comply. Um, so it becomes much more difficult whenever we have special regulations, including slots that are fisheries based. Um, whenever we move to those, it becomes hard for users to apply, uh, to comply with those regulations. And we think of things like bass anglers, right? We're, we're watching a podcast right now about bass fishing. So we understand regulations. But for all those COVID anglers, um, you know, for, for years that are just showing up, they don't really understand regulations. And so it becomes much more difficult to educate them um, than it is to just standardize the regulation. And then kind of the last part of that is you're going to see over the next five years, more states moving to what Oklahoma now does, which is allow you to uh, basically remove as many fish as you want uh, underneath a certain size and only possess one over a certain size. Because what we're seeing now is consumptive rates are so low for largemouth bass that a lot of fisheries are starting to, to have stunted populations. And so you're gonna see some regulation change, but it's not gonna be most likely a slot limit. It'll be more of what we would call a harvest limit where they, they're kind of promoting you to actually take some small fish out. It sounds like they're starting to like adopt some like saltwater, like redfish, uh snook regulations and stuff like that to help promote like a trophy fishery yeah we we want trophy fisheries but there's there's not many regulations that that lead you to a trophy fishery right um our our state regs our harvest regulations are are kind of built to to make it easy um, not built to manage the fisheries as much as as we would think. The management's done on on you know the the manager side basically. Uh, you know how are they manipulating forage? How are they manipulating stocking rates? How are they changing habitat? Things like that. Makes sense. All right. So my last fisheries question to you before we get into our last fun question that'll wrap it up for tonight is. What are the current, like, trending, biggest, most important conservation efforts that people should be researching and getting behind? Oh, that's a great question. Um, all of our reservoirs are aging. Like I said that at the beginning of this process. Uh, aging includes siltation. Aging includes nutrient changing, either nutrification or decreasing nutrient. And aging includes loss of habitat. And I think the number one thing that you're going to see your state agency and, and groups like Major League Fishing and Bassmaster asking you guys to volunteer for is going to be things like habitat restoration projects. 
Um, habitat restoration is it's very popular right now uh, because it's it's essential. Um, if we want to talk about how do we uh, you know grow more fish, how do we create trophy fisheries, how do we support more anglers, we got to have the habitat to do it. Um, and we're not building new fisheries at a rate that that kind of handles all these things. Um, and all of our fisheries are, are aging at the same time. Um, you know, you really look at the curves, the up and down, the new lake effects um, that you see whenever our fisheries originally built and how great that population grows. I mean, I, I know that whenever me and you were talking uh, in Louisiana, Bailey, I was showing you some pictures of things that we've grown, you know, three pound largemouth in one year. Um, you can do those in a new fishery. Most of your reservoirs now, due to a lack of habitat um, and maybe a lack of forage abundance, it, it, the fish are growing at like maybe half a pound, six inches a year, stuff like that. So um, habitat restoration is going to be one of those big topics. Another one is with nutrient and, and toxic alical blooms, uh, things like blue-green algae. Um, that's going to become more of a buzzword as we talk about climate change, as we talk about uh, the fact that, you know, your summers are becoming more summerish, um, and kind of our winters are becoming more unstable. That's, that's creating different nutrient flows that are leading to some harmful algal blooms. And then the last one, I guess, um, you know, we have to talk about is exotic species. Um, you know, in the South, things like giant salvinia, um, mm. being aware of what those are and how to report them would be super important. Well, that's, that's really good to know. Um, okay. So our last question for the night, that is for, it's for everybody that's brand new to the show. I'm brand that new. Is, yeah. That's right. Uh, and I'm, I'm sure we're, we're going to get you on a lot. I hope you're prepared, Steve. Um, I'm always prepared. <laughs> so if you could sit down and have a beer and a steak, with three different individuals. They do okay. not have to be the fishing industry. They could be sports. They could be whatever. They could be alive now or a thousand years ago. It doesn't matter. Any three individuals that you'd like to sit down, have a steak, have a beer, pick their brain, who would they be? Man, that is tough. Okay. Um, let's do, how about Theodore Roosevelt, the father of conservation? Um, Let's do it while while he was still president, not before he went kind of crazy. Um, Theodore <laughs> Roosevelt, while he was president, um, that, that is a first. I'm pretty first. sure we've we've never had a Teddy. Um, a Teddy, man, yeah, yeah, Teddy. You know, you think about where do we fish and why do we fish and and hunt and things yeah. like that. I mean, the federal uh, park system, basically public yeah. lands. I yeah. mean, that all started with Teddy. Um, yeah, while he was president, that would be good, and then. Um, I'm thinking Johnny Morris. Johnny Morris is, I mean, the man does so much for conservation and spends an, an unbelievable amount. He's, you know, donated so much money even in the last year to conservation. So I think he would be good. And uh, I want to say, I want to say Joe Rogan to moderate the conversation. Yes. We need somebody who can, yes. who can keep us on topic and maybe throw something crazy that, that we weren't <laughs> thinking about. How about that? Yeah, that, That's that awesome. is great. Yeah. That might be one of the coolest three we've had 
on this show. That's so good. Teddy, Johnny, and uh, Joe Rogan. Let's have a party, man. Joe Joe will bring the shrooms. That's what Joe will do. (laughs) You don't know what Teddy had back in the day. This is true. This is true. Yeah, I I think that would be interesting. Yeah, you have to remember that was before recreational drug use was banned. So I'm sure like a lot of things went on way back then. It was legitimately the exploratory stage of America. So yes, yes. There you go. That's that's how we would do it. That's awesome. Well, Steve, for real, dude. One, just thank you for dropping the knowledge on us and everybody that is watching currently live, but also people that. We'll uh, we'll listen to this after the fact on MP3. I think everyone has learned a lot. Yes. Uh, And I think we're all in agreement. If you're good with it, let's reschedule a a part two for this thing. Get you on more as these topics arise to kind of pick your brain. Someone that's on the front lines of this stuff that does it day in, day out, and knows the nitty gritties to an accurate standpoint. Or us anglers, us simple-minded folk up here are just kind of have like what we see our perception days in the water where you actually know, you know, the facts. So if you're cool with it, man, we're going to keep getting you on the show to talk about this stuff. I'm cool with it, but I'm just an angler, just like you guys. Um, yeah. I just get paid to think about it. Hey. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> yeah. Well, for real, thank you for, for joining us tonight. It was a lot of fun uh, and looking forward to uh, getting you on again here soon. Thanks, all right. Thank you all so much. Yeah. Have a good night. Good luck. Yeah. Tomorrow. You'll t- yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> All right, Steve. We'll be in touch. Bye, guys. Yep. See ya. Oh, that man. was awesome. I have so many smallmouth questions we didn't even get to. Like, oh, just... we're, that's why we need a part two, part three, yeah. part ten, part fifty. Yeah. yeah, like we're. I have a, I have a feeling, like you know, schedule permitting, we're going to have Steve on quite a few times on the show. Good yeah. moving forward. I also want to give a shout out to everyone who tuned in and asked yeah. all these awesome questions. You guys rocked. So yeah. thank you. Heck yes. yeah. Appreciate everyone as always joining in. It's nice, Andy, to get back. You know, you're feeling well. We're firing on all cylinders yeah. now. It's been a hectic fall of travel and missed shows. And we appreciate everybody that's stuck it out through thick and thin with this show kind of Andy's been taking the reins when I've been, when I've been gone, and nope, obviously and Bailey's too- been solo because I've been sick for a month. So <laughs> it's been a, it's been a wild, wild yeah. ride. <laughs> Regardless, we appreciate every, all of you guys that tune into the show, whether it's on your tuning on YouTube, Facebook, or MP3. Appreciate it. If you guys do, uh, you know, a considerable amount of our folks um, listen to the show on Spotify as well as Apple Podcasts. If you guys could, if you get two seconds while you're listening to the show, give us a rating and review on MP3 on those two platforms, especially it really helps us out. We'd really appreciate it. Helps us get more views in terms of uh, finding new folks, more people that search fishing or bass fishing that want to learn more about it. Um, They're able to see our shows and able to learn from folks like Steve that we had on tonight and spread more of this education that needs to be known about in our sports. The more you guys can do that helps us. Helps Steve, helps you guys in the long run, and helps our sport. So it's yeah. a full cycle. So we appreciate yeah. it if you could do so. I'm going to toss this out there too. Is just like if you guys absolutely love this show, please share it with your friends. Like help us grow so we can continue to bring all of you awesome content. Exactly. Uh, a lot of great folks. Uh, Brad's still here too, and Brad again, congrats on the leads. Yeah. We'll be uh, we'll be in touch, buddy. Um, yeah. 
But as always, folks, appreciate you guys. Apparel is coming very soon. I promise within the within the next couple of weeks. Um, so hopefully we have a, that for you guys, so you guys can reap the rewards of getting some Serious Angler merch. Yeah. Um, and again, if you've not checked out the new show on Serious Angler podcast, it's been around. It's almost full two months now that Lure yeah. Lab has been up and running. Andy's been pumping away on content for that. Uh, post every Saturday morning. So we, if for folks that still have open water while you're driving to the ramp, great show to binge topics of techniques, hot baits, etc. And he's doing a great job that all of that is linked down below. If you guys want to go listen and watch on um, the lure lab, which is the new show on the serious angler podcast network. But Andy, anything else the folks need to know before we tune out tonight? See ya. <laughs> we are. Good. I will say. Friday's episode for Serious Angler is going to be a fun one. We're getting a, a good friend of ours on who's a kayak angler, Mr. Matthew Scotch, who had a great showing at the Hobie TOC that I was at where I sucked. He did great. He would have done way better on the final day, except for a crazy story that led to him fishing butt naked the whole day. Yikes. We're going to dive into that story. It's going to be actually pretty, it's going to be pretty interesting. So Yikes. make sure you stay tuned for Friday. That's going to be a fun one. But as always, <laughs> folks, Appreciate you guys. We will see you on Friday. Well, that was an awesome show. Hope you guys enjoyed it. If you can and your app allows it, please leave us a rating and review. It really helps us get seen more, which allows us to access more time and more variables to be able to bring to the show to make it better for you guys. So hope you enjoyed it. And if you did and you like some of the things we talked about in this episode and want to check out our show partners, all of that is in every single show description. You can click down there. It's got all of our discount codes, all of our links to our show partners where you guys can go and support the people that support this show and help us make this show happen. And of course, this show does not happen without you guys. You guys know we appreciate you. You're the Sears Sanger fam. You're the reason we're here. Appreciate y'all, and we'll see y'all on the next one.